Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. All righty. Well, um, we've been looking at the old Roman creed. So we've just been going through and looking at the ancient beliefs um, that Christians from uh, first century Christianity all the way through to today uh, believe these shared things that if you were to go into um, any part of the world and you find a group of Bible-believing Christians gathered together, they're going to say yes to these things. And we've been revisiting not because we don't know them, not because we have forgotten some of these. They'll, it'll feel a little bit elementary if you've been involved in church for a while, but to do a dive into why, reminding ourselves why these pieces are important of what we believe. And so uh, if you've got your Bible app, if you've got your, however it is you're going to track along with us together, then let's get into this of what we believe is the framework of our relationship with God. That's the framework. You're not going to be able to see God other than the framework that you have built in your mind. If you do not see God as a God who loves you and is for you, you won't see that even though that's who he is. You will always look at him as a God who, who is judgmental, who, who looks down on you, who has something against you, and you'll see him through that angle every time. And so we have to have the right framework. And our core beliefs about God, they provide the bulk of the framework. Now, these things we roll through, they're not all of them, but these are these core shared things. And we're revisiting them on purpose because this is crucial. This is even why one of our Gospels was even written. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke. If we remember Luke, um, Luke was a doctor. Um, Luke was an educated guy. He was not a disciple. He was not there as an eyewitness. We have eyewitness accounts with Matthew and and with John. And and then uh, we have these people who had boots on the ground and, and ate some of the bread that Jesus miraculously multiplied. We have those accounts. But Luke is a unique account in that his account comes about, honestly, he was very much similar to you and I. He had heard about what Jesus had done. He just heard about it in the first century. He had just heard about it right when it was fresh. And he begins to investigate and see what is this Jesus guy all about. And out of that, he wants to communicate what he's learned to one person. It's not that he's trying to write a bestseller. It's not that he's trying to get out there. He cares about one person's belief. I love that one of the gospels was written because one person mattered to one person. It's just the way the gospel has gone forward. The good news has, has moved forward because somebody mattered to somebody and they shared the good news of Jesus. And so let's look at Luke chapter one, verse one. Um, it says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, 
most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, that it is good for us to be able to, to, to study and to look and to carefully investigate so that we can have the certainty of the things we've been taught. This is, it's vital. You ought to be digging into the scriptures. You ought to be checking on it. There's a reason that there's a lot of scripture in your bulletin. There's a reason that it's there and, and so that you can go back and look and you can look at context. And man, does, this is, does this guy even, even know what he's talking about? And you can go check it. I want you to be able to do that. And so as we are investigating these things and revisiting these things and going back to the old Roman creed, um, now we've reminded ourselves that, you know, you've probably are more familiar on, as far as creeds go with the Apostles' Creed. Um, or the Nicene Creed, and they have elements of the Old Roman Creed, but we've gone back to the Old Roman Creed because it's the oldest one we have. And so it dates to about year 125. Um, John, the one who wrote um, the book of John, um, eyewitness to Jesus, he died year 100. So year 125, super fresh. And so as we look at this, these are things that first century believers own. This isn't stuff that somebody turned all these years later, turned Jesus into some superstar. No, this is what his contemporaries believed about him. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, his only son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried. On the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and life everlasting. And we've gone through the first four pieces of that, and today we're going to focus on this part of the creed that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Why is it important to know that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. We get it that he ascended. We get it that the Holy Spirit came. We get it that then that reminds us that Jesus physically is alive. Jesus is alive. It's not just that he lived and he did his thing and he rose again, but Jesus still lives. The scriptures say he lives making intercession for us. He, he reminds there in heavens of what's been accomplished, keeps all of heaven on notice that we're forgiven, that we're whole. Everything's been done on our behalf, and he, Jesus is alive. But it's important for us to understand that he is seated. He's not pacing heaven trying to fill the gaps. He's not pacing heaven trying to do some stuff up there. Jesus is seated because he finished everything he came to do. That is why he is seated, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 3. After he had pr provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After Jesus completed his work, he provided for purification of sins. You and I needed purification of sins, and Jesus accomplished it. And when he had done that, it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Here's Mark's account of, it says in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 19, it says, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. He's there 
at the right hand of God because he has completed everything. Now, Jesus said, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But the main functions of the Holy Spirit is to reveal what has been accomplished for us. Things have been accomplished Just a lot of times we don't know that they have been done. Because the truth is is that finishing is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. And if you have a few uh, laps around the sun, like I do, if you've got some some decades under your belt, some of the things that fall in your regret column aren't just things you've done, but things you didn't finish. There's a ton of us who have regrets on things we didn't finish. Something, things we knew that we were called to, knew we needed to do, things that that could have made a difference. And for whatever reason, we got distracted, we got pulled aside, we got discouraged, whatever, we didn't finish. And just the fact that it's not finished haunts us gnaws at us. It, it, it bothers us. In fact, there's subject matters we don't even want to talk about because it brings up the fact that we didn't, we didn't finish that. Because finishing, finishing is powerful. And I and understood years ago the, the power of, of just finishing. That sometimes things just need to be accomplished. And um, I am not athletic. I've been very open through the years about that. Um, zero modesty, all fact. And so um, I am just not. And so it requires athleticism, requires eye-hand coordination and some sort of quickness, and I do not have that. And so, um, so I decided years ago that I did want to do something that was considered athletic. And so it was not going to be able to do something astounding um, but I was like, you know what? I can kind of run in a straight line at a slow pace, and I can ride a bicycle. And so I think there was this event that used to happen here called the Striders Duathlon. And so and you would, it was a run, bike, run event. And so you, the one I was going to look at was a short course. It was, you'd run a 5K, and then you would ride a 30K, and then you would run another 5K. Well, at that point, I had run no K. And so... <laughs> And I was really okay with the fact of that. And so, um, but I decided I wanted to do this athletic thing. And so I began to go out and I ran, you know, a little half mile and thought my lung was literally going to come out of my chest and got a little better. I got a little more distance under my belt. So then I was ready to take on my first training 5K. And so no one's going to have to then ride a bike and then do the 5K again at some point, but I was just, I just got to at least be able to run one of these. So, um, you know, I, I took someone along who could go for help. And so in case my 5K didn't work well. And so I had Keenan, he was about 10 years old. He was on his bicycle and he was riding beside me, not very fast, but he was, he was riding um, beside me as I am going at my sad little pace running through the neighborhood and going along, and Keenan's like, why? Why, Dad, why are, we, why are you doing this? Why are you running? And I was like, well, son, there's, there's a race in a few months, and, um, you know, and I, I want to be able to, to do this race. And he's like, awesome, Dad, are you going to win? I said, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know if I was the only one to enter if I could win. 
And so, and uh, so I was like, no, I'm not going to win. And he's like, dad, you know, don't be, don't be so negative. He said, you, you can win. You need to win. Don't say that about yourself. You can win. I was like, son, I'm not going to win. It's not happening. I am, I am not going to win. And he rides a little bit more and he's like, dad, at least don't come in last. And, and, and he went from my pride on the line to his pride on the line. I cannot, I cannot be the kid whose dad comes in last. I just, I'm never going to hear the end out of it. And, and so he's like, I, I, just, I can't show my face on the playground. And so um, I, told, I said, son, I'm, I'm probably going to come in last. I, I said, it's just, it's probably going to happen. I'm at peace with it. I'm, I'm good. If I, if I complete this, that's the win. The win is a completion. I was not out there to prove anything. I was not out there to win anything. I was not out there to get accolades. I was out there to simply complete. Jesus, when he came to earth, Jesus was king of kings and Lord of lords already. Jesus had the angels in heaven glorifying him. Jesus did not come to this planet so he could accomplish something so all of us could show up and raise and give Jesus some praise because he was lacking some praise. No, Jesus showed up on this planet not to sit there and win something and get some sort of acclaim. No, Jesus showed up on this planet to accomplish something, to finish something, to get something done. And that is why Jesus showed up because the finishing of what he was called to do was vital. And he sat down to show us it's done. It's finished. So we don't have to worry in our mind, is Jesus, is he finished? No, he's done. It's completed. It's all accomplished. John 19 verse 30 says, when he had received the drink, Jesus is there on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus made sure he stayed alive. How sweet is it? Heavenly Father didn't let Jesus suffer one piece longer than was necessary. He didn't suffer one second longer than was necessary. There had just been the fulfillment of a prophecy about offering this bitter thing to him as a drink. It just took place. Last prophecy done. It's finished. He's gone. It's, fin it's finished. John writes this not in English. He writes it in Greek. And Jesus was not speaking Greek there on the cross, Aramaic or Hebrew. But John, writing to a Greek audience, writes out. And Jesus, <clears throat> John does not write three words, it is finished. John in the Greek writes one word that Jesus says, teleo. And teleo is this word that is just just full of meaning. And yes, it means accomplished. Yes, it means finished. Yes, it means um, even like a task completed. But there's this really thick word. And in fact, they've found documents and bills with this word teleo, ancient documents of, the, of between merchants that have the word teleo written on them. And it, what it said is that there was a debt that was paid. Teleo was, was written on something when a debt was paid in full. And so as Jesus is there, he's not even pounding his chest and saying, yep, I finished it. Yes, it's accomplished. No, he is looking at you and I, and he says, debt paid. Bam. That was it. That was what it was about. 
Jesus said, I have accomplishment. The debt is paid. It is done. Salvation has been brought. That is what this is about. And the thing is, is a lot of times we don't live in the consciousness of the fullness of what has been done on our behalf. We don't. We don't live in the it is finished part of what Jesus did. We sometimes think that there's some more things that, that kind of need to be done, that God, I know you said it's finished, but there's some, some other stuff I feel like's not quite complete, and it, it, shows up, it shows up in our prayer life a lot. Now, there's no condemnation. God just loves the fact you open your mouth, okay? You just talk to God, and you know what? He, he understands our hearts. But a lot of times in our prayer life, it will kind of reveal the fact that we're not conscious of what has been done, Okay? Because we'll talk to God and we'll talk to God and ask him to do something about a situation. We want God to step into a situation and accomplish something, okay? When we, if we have an it is finished idea, then what our hearts would honestly be doing is we would be going to God, understanding that he has already accomplished what needs to be accomplished and saying, God, how do I step into what you have already done? Not asking you to step in to this situation and do something, but God, how do I step in to what's already been accomplished? I'll give you an example of this, that, that maybe you're having just like some tension with your boss, okay? And you're, you're frustrated, okay? And you're, you're frustrated and you're praying about your boss, okay? And your boss is mean and hard to get along with. And, and so you're like, you know, God, um, I, I need to, you to do something about my boss. Uh, you see what I'm dealing with? Uh, Lord, I need you to do something about my boss or, or I'm gonna do something about my boss. Um, and if prison ministry is where I'm called, I'm called. I'll do what I need to do, Lord. And, and so, and, you know, and so, and we have this thing. And so we're another way understanding that God has been at work and it is finished and he has prepared good works in advance for us to do. That his grace has made room for those things and that we could pray in a different way and say, Lord, God, I thank you, Lord, that you love me, that your work is completed for me and completed for my boss. And Lord, help me to begin to step into what you have already accomplished here. Lord, the enemy is at work, and I'm not going to let the enemy use this person to determine how this relationship is going to go. God, you have accomplished something. You've accomplished restoration for them. You've accomplished restoration for me. How do I begin to step into what you've already accomplished? How do I begin to see the, the entire atmosphere of not just our work and relationship, but my entire office, my entire work group begin to shift? God, what do I need to do? How do I begin to walk in the fullness of what you've already accomplished, even in my work? workspace. It changes the way we pray. It changes even our anticipation of what the answer prayers are going to look like. It may be all of a sudden us doing something out of character and out of even what seems natural in it that we volunteer for to take some extra stuff off the frustrated boss's plate, that maybe we have a needful conversation, but we do it with grace instead of the anger that's coming out and the frustration. Who knows how the Holy Spirit's gonna lead, but all of a sudden when we introduce the Holy Spirit into that, it changes the dynamic because God has already accomplished something. See, everything that Jesus did was to finish his work. 
We see this from the very beginning. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 49. And, it's, and here, Jesus has mysteriously disappeared on his parents. And they're frantically searching for him. They finally find him in the temple, talking and blowing the minds of the scribes and the leaders and the, and the, the lawyers there. And, and he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Then you know I'd be about my father's business. Now, this is not 30-year-old starting his ministry, Jesus, okay? This isn't even like 25-year-old, like probably he's going to step into something soon, Jesus. This isn't 31-year-old by the Sea of Galilee just fed 5,000 people, Jesus. This is 12-year-old Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus. And he, the whole time, had his father's business on his mind. 12-year-old Jesus understood that he'd be about his father's work, being about that that's why he has showed up to finish the work. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verse 16, as he does begin his ministry. It says he went to Nazareth and where he'd been brought up. And um, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Let's just pause right there. Jesus has not yet, he's beginning his earthly ministry right in this moment, okay? But he had already had a custom of showing up at the synagogue. The synagogue was the place where people who cared about God showed up and connected, okay? So Jesus, before he began his earthly ministry, was already showing up at church meetings. Jesus was already hanging out with people who cared about God. Folks, we, we're not showing up here and doing this because God's counting heads and seeing. So he's kind of putting a little log and a little, a little tally together and saying, okay, when you were that final moment, when you stand before him, so you're not showing up here saying, God, you know, I showed up a few times, you know, I didn't totally blow the whole church thing off. You know, that's not what this is about. This is about the fact that, that we gather together, we learn, we grow, we're the body of Christ that Jesus modeled Life shared together in people who, who cared about God and were trying to move forward with God. It was Jesus' custom to gather together on a weekly basis at the synagogue. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, this is what I'm called to do. This is what I'm about to do. I'm stepping into this right now. In fact, the very next verse says, he hands it back and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is, this is being fulfilled. So this is what he's called to do, Okay. That he's, from the very beginning, I have an assignment. These things are going to be accomplished. Now, we're about to look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 involves John the Baptist. And when we catch up with John the Baptist here, um, things have passed since he has baptized Jesus. Now, Jesus had to convince John to baptize him. John was like, eh, no, you're, 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 the, you're the man. Um, you ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, it's needful. And so... John baptizes Jesus, takes his hands, puts them on Jesus, lowers Jesus down into the water, brings Jesus up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. 
and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love. Hear him. He speaks. There's an audible voice that comes, and John has his hands on Jesus. When this happens, you can't draw or paint the picture of Jesus' baptism without John. He's right there. He's touching him. Can't crop him out. He's right there. He is in the middle of it. He, he experienced it, but from that point forward, things didn't go the way John thought that they were go. He was not the kind of Messiah he thought that we were going to get. All of a sudden, this Messiah shows up and gives bread to everybody. This Messiah does miracles. This Messiah hangs out with scandalous people. This guy, this Messiah goes into the houses of sinners. This Messiah touches lepers. This Messiah is not raising up an army and going to fight the Roman oppression. That's what they thought Messiah was going to do. And John ends up in jail and a little freaked out about how Jesus is actually doing his thing. In verse 2, it says, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he heard it. It just didn't jive. And now he was there. It's like, no, I'm, you, you need to baptize me, not, not me baptize you. He hears the voice. He was convinced of it in that moment. But then life and circumstances, and he found himself in jail, and life punched him in the mouth. And now he's, he's kind of doubting. Verse 3, it says, send his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? He'd been so convinced of who Jesus was and had had one of the most amazing experiences. But life punched him in the mouth so hard that he's doubting what he was so sure of. Some of you this morning, you're dealing with some of that. Had a place where you would have been sure of your relationship with God. You've been sure of who God was. and Things just didn't go the way you thought they were going to go. Life has punched you in the mouth and you've found yourself like John, doubting. Is it really, is it really you? And I want to tell you, I want to tell you God loves you. Scriptures say a, a smoldering wick, a wick that's just barely burning, he, he doesn't snuff out. A bruised reed, he didn't just go ahead and knock it over. He's tender and God cares about you. And he'll be patient with you in this. Jesus didn't blow John and his disciples off. He reminded them of what Jesus was about. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised, good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Like everything he said he was going to do and reading from the prophet Isaiah, he says, it's happening. It's done. Tell John the stuff is getting done. And he'll remember who I am. See, everything Jesus did, everything Jesus did was from the lens of completing his work when when he had an interaction with a scandalized woman. Notice I said a scandalized woman, not a scandalous woman. 
Yeah, she'd made some poor decisions and some poor decisions had been made to her and there'd been a lot of chatter and she'd become scandalized to where she felt pushed away from society and culture and she's there at this well at a time of day when you don't draw water because she's avoiding everybody and she runs into Jesus. Praise God, sometimes when we're trying to avoid everybody, we still bump into Jesus. And she bumps into Jesus. He ministers to her begins to just rock her world from a theological perspective, pours out love, pours things out. She begins to actually be so inspired. She brings people to Jesus, and his, this all happens while his disciples went to go get some food. And in verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? They're missing it. They're missing it. So Jesus has to make it clear. He says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus found fulfillment in that moment at the well. He said, that filled me up. I don't need physical food. That was, that was more satisfying to me than anything in the world, doing what I'm called to do. Everything he did was to fulfill his work. When he touched a leper, Instead of healing him from a distance and just stepped into the middle of his sores and play, laid his healing hands on that, on that broken man's body, he was showing what God was really like. Whenever, he's, whenever they dealt with a woman caught in adultery and they drug her out and they were ready to stone her, and then finally when it was all said and done, he says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. He is redrawing the framework that, guess what? It's forgiveness, it's grace that empowers us to live a sin-free life. The law is going to kill us, but grace sets us free and lets us live above the stuff that it had us in bondage before. That everything he was doing when he heals on the Sabbath, he shows that it's more important to touch and to heal the brokenness than worry about breaking a law. That all of a sudden he begins to reframe things and bring a place of finished work over and over again. John chapter 5 verse 36, he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And then John 17, 1 says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those who you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. See, Jesus finished his work because of what it means for you and I. It's a, it, that's new life. See, as Jesus was saying, debt paid, teleo, it is finished. He had you on his mind. You were part of the story. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 reminds us this, of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured it, scorning its shame. He shamed the shame. He said, he's not even going to allow it to have place on him. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Why did Jesus deal with the, with the whip? Why did Jesus deal with the nails? Why did Jesus deal with a crown of thorns? It was for joy, not because those things were enjoyable. They were excruciating. But what they were accomplishing, that was joy. And it was you and I being restored, you and I being able to step into a completed and finished work. That was the joy that it's done, that the enemy is lost, that hell doesn't have hold over us anymore, that sin's hold is broken. That was the joy. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Jesus is seated, and this says, so are we. We're seated with him. Why? Because he finished the work. He finished the work so you and I could be seated with him. Our bottom line is this, that Jesus is, is seated and he invites us to the table. He invites us to partake of what he has put out the spread that he has done, what he has finished, it is ready. Let's sit down and enjoy. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.